Turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans 7. Have you ever heard of something called the Stockholm Syndrome? Okay, so for some of you, like, yeah, what is that? That sounds familiar. August 23rd, 1973, there's a guy by the name of Jan Erik Olsen. He had been released from prison. He was on parole. He decided he needed a little bit more money, and so he decided to hold up a bank in Stockholm, Sweden. Well, when the police showed up, he decided to take some hostages. He took four hostages, put them in a vault, and it ended up being a six-day standoff between Olsen and the police. He threatened to kill them. Uh, at one point, he asked to speak to the prime minister of Sweden, and he did, and he actually put one of the hostages, Kristen Enmark, on the phone. When she got on the phone, she said this to the prime minister, I'm very disappointed in you. I think you're sitting here playing with our lives. And it was, it was really interesting that Kristen wasn't the only hostage that developed an affinity for her captor. In fact, the other hostages, when a rescue was attempted, they actually resisted being rescued. And later, they actually refused to even testify against their captor. A couple of them even tried to raise funds for their captor's defense. Now, anytime there is a condition where someone has a greater affinity and attraction to their captor rather than their rescuer, it is called the Stockholm Syndrome. And this condition has parallels for a lot of Christians. There are a lot of folks that believe everything we just sang about, that's right, I am saved by God's grace. I know the song and I actually believe that. But their lives are literally chained to a law. Whether they find these principles or the laws in the Bible or they're man-made, or they're created in their own head, or someone in their church, or a pastor or denomination is enforcing this list of do's and don'ts, they live their life by what we would call legalism. Legalism is simply this. It's the belief that I can be made holy, and I can please God by obeying laws. And that it's through a list of do's and don'ts that my spirituality actually grows. And this is something that there are literally millions of people, they see that relationship with God and they see it as a list of check marks of things that I should do and things that I should avoid. And I just want you to know from years of working and talking with people that legalism is borderline lethal to your spirituality. And let me just tell you what happens. If you're a legalist and there are churches, denominations, and people that specialize in this, What happens is one of two things. Either you become hypocritical and you learn how to turn it on. You turn it on at church. You see folks from the church and all of a sudden you got back to that little Christian little lifestyle. You're always trying like you're on this treadmill to do all these things right and to follow this list. But after you get tired of that, the second thing generally happens. You literally implode. What happens is people that were once, man, they really seem to be zealous for God. And you know people like this, and now they have nothing to do with them. They just completely walked away. It's like their system's fried. And what happens with people that are legalistic, and and you're like, whoa, you're explaining my life, or I know people like this, is not only are they really hard on themselves because they're trying to follow all these lists of do's and don'ts, and they gauge their spirituality quantitatively, but they actually are very hard and harsh toward others. They want others to follow these same standards that they themselves really can't handle, And so they become very difficult to be around. They're unforgiving, they're unloving, and they are critical. You need to understand your relationship to the law. 
And if you don't, you're likely a slave to it. If you really want to be liberated from legalism, you want to help someone get out of legalistic mindset, then Romans 7, 1 through 13 is going to be home base for you. You see, when we are compelled by love, we are no longer controlled by law. And the law, it'll either ruin or run your life until you really understand what it means to grow in the grace of Christ. When you come to Romans chapter 7, Paul is addressing this issue. What do you need to know to literally escape from a life of legalism? Well, first of all, for those in Christ, you need to know that the rule of the law has ended. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. He's going to use an illustration from civil law, and he's going to explain how we are no longer under law, but under grace. Remember that from Romans six fourteen. You're no longer under law, but grace. So listen to what he says, verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, I am speaking to those who know the law, and he's talking about either those who had come from a Jewish background who had placed their faith in Christ that knew the Hebrew scriptures very well, or Gentiles that were referred to as God-fears that actually had grown accustomed to hearing the Hebrew scriptures. He says, I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction. It governs you over a person as long as he lives. And here he goes with the illustration. For the married woman, verse 2, is bound by law to her husband while he is living. Okay, that's how it works, right? But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, okay, so what happens if that's the case? She shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Now, the primary emphasis is not like this is the teaching on uh, remarriage, because actually he's just using this as analogy or as an illustration. Uh, Jesus, Matthew 5, Matthew 19, says that if adultery takes place, it could be grounds for divorce and a biblical remarriage. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7 that abandonment, which could potentially entail even abuse, would allow for a divorce and remarriage. He's not like giving you, this is everything you know to be, need to know about uh, remarriage. He's simply using this illustration and pointing out this, that death breaks that marriage relationship and there is no longer a jurisdiction of the law on that person. They are actually free to remarry. And for those of us in Christ, you need to understand something. The rule of the law has ended for you. That is because, verse 4, relationship with God has been established. Look what he says here. This verse 4 is so important. I've got it underlined. I've got it marked by it. It is critical to your understanding of what it means to be in Christ. He says, therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law. How? through the body of Christ. Literally, when Christ died on the cross, you and I are united with him. His death becomes our death. We are then free, and so look what he says, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. His death 
becomes our death, which allows us to be married, united with him. What an amazing metaphor of the Christian life. It's like we are united, we are married to Christ. We are in a loving relationship where he accepts us and loves us unconditionally. Now, if you're married, you know that, that there is a significant loss of freedom and independence that comes with marriage, Right? You're, you're involved. You don't just like, I'll do whatever I want, whenever I want. Actually, you'd make decisions together, whether it's your finances, what you're doing with your time, how you're functioning, philosophy of parenting. Everything is united. And that is how it is with the Christian life. We have, we're not dead to the law, so we can just live however we want. We're free. God's dealt with the penalty, and I can just basically do whatever I want, and God's got me covered. That's not freedom. That's actually bondage, like we saw in Romans chapter 6. Actually, we have the freedom to experience love, care, concern, to walk in the Spirit, to follow the will of the Lord. And notice what he says. We are raised from the, he was raised from the dead in order that he might bear fruit for God. Christ's resurrection literally allows us to bear fruit to God because the Spirit of God actually comes and takes up residency in our life. We live differently because we're united with Christ. We are dead to the law, dead to sin, so that we are alive in Christ. And he goes on to say in, about this fruit, what kind of fruit is this that God bears? Fruit comes in two forms, attitudes and actions. You might want to remember this because this is what God is seeking to develop in your life through your relationship with Christ. Attitudes, like what? Like the fruit of the Spirit. Remember in Galatians chapter 5, God is seeking to develop a new way of living where you're experiencing love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You live differently because why? You're united with a resurrected Christ. But he is also seeking to change the way you act. Anything about you, from how you work to how you engage with people, how you treat your kids, your spouse, anything that you do, you, that you do differently because of your relationship with Christ, this is fruit unto God. And God wants his people to be extremely fruit-bearing in every season. And he makes it possible through our relationship with Christ. It's not you doing this so much as that you relying on the spirit of God and you're walking with God in this life. But you need to know something. You're going to bear fruit one way or the other. Because even before you were a Christian, you were bearing fruit. Look at verse 5. He says, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. So he's saying the law literally kind of made your, the sin nature the, just kind of come alive. The law said what to do or what not to do. God expressed it in the, in the Old Testament scriptures. And once you found that out, it's like it incited your sin nature to literally go and rebel against God, to do whatever you wanted. And by naming them and forbidding them, you were attracted to them. And so when he talks about that you bore fruit to death, that's really, that explains life apart from God. Because look at, before we were Christians, before I was a Christian, before you were a believer, you did what you wanted, right? You see, we want to be 
independent, self-made individuals. We want to not have anyone infringe upon our sovereignty. And so you do whatever you want. Whether you're immoral, you just go off with anger, you're arrogant, you're prideful, you got all these issues, you live at an expression of who you really are. But what the law, when the law came, you found out that God said, this is the way to go. This is what not to do. This is an expression of my holiness. And it incited in you a desire to oppose God and to do whatever you wanted. And that is how it worked. And so he says in verse six, but now we have been released from the law. You've been released. You're no longer the law's penalty. It doesn't have a rule over you. Verse six, having died to that by which we were bound so that we serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. We now serve and walk with God on the basis of living in the Holy Spirit. And we have a whole new motivation to follow God. It's not like we're trying to earn God's favor, not like we're trying to climb a ladder. We literally love him and hence we seek to obey him, and we do it from the heart, and it is spirit-generated. Now, God gave his law for two purposes, and if you were trying to figure out this out, well, so why did God give these laws, like the Ten Commandments, like in the moral law? What, what was the purpose of that? Well, first of all, the law exposes our sins. God says, this is holiness before me, and we don't do it. It exposes our sins, whatever that might be, adultery, disobedience to parents, anger, coveting, whatever it is, the law exposes it. But the law also does this. It exposes our sinfulness. Not only the specific acts that we do, but it shows that we are sinners by nature. Not only can't we can't do what God asks, we don't want to. And it shows just how sinful we are. That's what the law does. I was reading about this, um, one of the first high-rise hotels they put up in Galveston, Texas. They put it literally right uh, on, the, on the gulf there. And so, I mean, you know, the water is just right there in front. And after they constructed this high-rise, the owners were like fearful that the people would start fishing off the balcony. You know, like, whoa, you know what they're going to do? They start fishing off here. I mean, they're literally, there's the water right there. We got the first floor. It's got all this glass. We got our fancy restaurant. That's not going to work. So we need to make sure this doesn't happen. So on, on all of the rooms that face the Gulf, in every single room, they put this sign that said, absolutely no fishing from the balcony. And they put a sign on every single one of those rooms right there. So guess what happened? Guests started coming, and they saw the sign, and like, whoa, hey, I'm going back to the car. And they go back there, and they come back with their fishing pole, and they started fishing. Because they hadn't come to the hotel with any idea that they would do any fishing from the balcony. Do, do you guys function that way? Do you show up at a hotel thinking you're going to fish from the balcony? No. But if you saw a sign that told you not to do it, I think that's exactly what I'll do. And that's what happened. So now you had people and they're fishing. Those big lead weights were smacking against the window. They cracked it multiple times. I mean, their worst nightmares were coming true because people were doing exactly what they didn't want to do. So they're like, man, we've got to fix this. So how did they fix it? You know what they did? They took all the signs down, and guess what? No one fished from the balcony again. That's how human nature works. That is how the law works in your life. And it's, it's evil. It shows just how wretched we are. I know that you think you're pretty good. You're not so good. And, right? And if you're married, just ask your spouse. They're going to help you with this, okay? You're, you 
once you hear, you're like, I want to do my own thing. And that's exactly what happened. But notice, we've been released from the law. We don't serve in the oldness of the letter. We now serve God from the Spirit. You see, friends, you and I, we live by grace. And we recognize that we are free from bondage. And when we see God's law, we don't like, well, that doesn't matter to me. Actually, it matters all the more because you see its true intent. You see, the law, we understand it's not about externals. It's about internals. Remember when Jesus was going through the Sermon on the Mount and he says, you know, you've heard you shouldn't murder and you're like, great, haven't done that. But he says, you know what? I'm actually, the heart of that law is talking about anger. Remember, like, you shouldn't commit adultery. You're like, I think I'm pretty good this week on that. And he says, guess what? I mean, even if you're lusting after someone, you're guilty. Or, you know, I don't even want you calling people idiots and fools and, you know, simple-minded because I want you to respect humanity. Jesus laid out the full intent. And that's, we in the Spirit, we want to see God honored because why? We love him and we're united to him. If you want to understand, if you're a non-believer, the behavior of the Christian, they love Christ and they want to see him exalted and they want to do as he's intended and what he has called for. Now, you want to guard against legalism and moralism. We are so prone to create little checklists and to have like little boundary markers. Let me give you some like, like for instance, how many times you read your Bible and how often and how long you pray and how many, you know, like what worship looks like in your life. And we create these little boundary markers, but in actuality, you'd never want to legislate them. Actually, these are the means by which we receive grace. We receive strength. We're engaged in God and his presence. We're exalting him. It's just like we're enjoying being with him. And that is why you read your Bible. And that is why you pray. And that is why you worship. And it's not like someone tells you you've got to do those things or you tell yourself. Actually, you're compelled. You want to do them. Why? Because you've been united with Christ. Now, people have a tendency to be legalistic. Let me give you a modern-day example. Some of you have run into this. It's called the Hebraic Roots Movement. And this is the idea that they was, people involved in this, they, are, they say they're Christians, they probably are. They say, listen, we believe that you are saved by grace. But they believe that the Hebrew Roots Movement is that, that with the coming of Christ, that didn't end the Mosaic Covenant with the establishment of the New Covenant. Actually, what they teach is that it renewed the Mosaic Covenant and it literally wrote the Mosaic Covenant on your heart. And so what you need to do is celebrate the Jewishness, quote-unquote, of Christianity. Now, there's a variety of diversity among these kind of assemblies, but let me give you some of their, their commonalities. They are after what is called a Torah-observant life. Anybody know what the word Torah means? That's right. It's law for you Hebrew scholars. Torah means law. They are after a law-observant life. And you will find oftentimes these commonalities where they're trying to get people to follow the Mosaic Covenant. For instance, keeping the Torah includes keeping the Sabbath on the seventh day of the week, Saturday. Another one, celebrating the Jewish feasts and festivals. Those things become very important. Keeping the dietary laws of the Old Testament. Here's one that you've probably encountered. Uh, avoiding the quote-unquote paganism of Christianity, i.e. Christmas and Easter. Like, they don't even want to talk about that. They're going to avoid it, Easter, Christmas, and they want nothing to do with it. They see that that's, that's all paganism. That's an infiltration into Christianity. And then they are learning to understand the scriptures from a Hebrew mindset, which isn't a bad idea. But the problem is this. 
Even though they say that they're saved, you're saved by grace, they believe the only way that you can really be blessed and really grow in a relationship with God is if you observe these laws. If you want a blessed life, you have to have a Torah observant life. And what it does is it creates a scenario where you've got a higher path. And the problem is this. Nowhere in the Bible do we find that Gentiles are being instructed to live by the Levitical laws and Jewish customs. In fact, you find the opposite. Where? Look at verse 6 again. But now we have been what? Released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. Friends, if you want to be liberated from legalism, you need to understand some things. The rule of the law has ended for you. Relationship with God has been established. You are trusting in Christ. Not only are your sins forgiven, but you're united to him. You grow in this relationship. And let me give you one other. The recognition of the law's intent for you in your life, it's expanded. And now Paul is going to get really personal. It's almost as if he is starting to give his testimony because he slips into the first person. And he is going to answer the question that everybody that's been tracking with him is answering, asking, is the law sinful? Is that what you're saying, Paul? The law is sinful. In fact, look, at, you see it, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? What do you think? Well, listen, to the, listen to the Spirit-inspired answer. May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, and I would have not known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. The law has an effect kind of like an MRI, okay? MRI is pretty fascinating. They can take body tissue and they can find cancer developing long before you even have symptoms. Now, who would say like, oh man, I hate that MRI machine. Oh, they scanned me and I got cancer because of it. Is anybody thinking at that kind of level? No, you know what? No, the MRI machine, that didn't give you cancer. That showed you that you had it. And because you now know that you have it, you now can go to a source where you can try to get cured. That's what the law does. It shows us we've got a sin nature. We are very rebellious to the very one who made us, namely God. And the law shows us our sin. And because it shows us our sin, it shows us our great need for a Messiah, a Savior, in which God provides. And, you know, notice what he said here. He said, I would have not known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Pretty interesting. You know when you go to the Ten Commandments and the Jewish people, now they believed that they were saved because God chose them. They were God's chosen people. But they tried very hard to keep the laws. And through their efforts, that's why they looked down upon anybody that didn't try as hard as they did. Okay? You were Gentiles. You were scum. But then Paul says, I wouldn't have known about coveting. Pretty interesting. When you go to the Ten Commandments, you can like almost treat it like a checklist. Like, whew. Man, I haven't worshipped idols, doing good there. Dis I haven't disobeyed my parents. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't stolen anything. I haven't committed adultery. Man, I'm doing great. And you compare yourself to other people and you think like, ha ha, man, I'm doing awesome. But when you come to coveting, it actually shows you the true intent of the law, that it's internal. When you covet, what does that look like? Where does all that coveting take place? It takes place where? In your head, in your heart. You see your neighbor's stuff, their wife, 
their kids, their money, their bank account, their job, their position, their mule of all things. And you're like, I want it, right? And it's, where is this all taking place? It's taking place internally. And it shows you that the true intent of the law was internal. And Paul was going, man, I was good. I was a Pharisee, Pharisee. I did not break the rules, but once I understood the true intent of the law and I came to thou shall not covet, I saw that I was a wretched mess. It showed me just internally how wicked I am. Now, the law has like three elements to it. There's the moral law. That is like the Ten Commandments that guide and govern and show this is, this is right. It's God's morality. It also had the social law, which kind of governed their secular, social, political, economic life. And they had ceremonial or religious law, which kind of told them how to worship, which, by the way, pointed to Christ and was fulfilled by Christ. But when God gives his moral law and we really start to understand it, we see that we have drastically failed. And look at verse 7. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, but for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Verse 8, but sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I understood God's law, what he said it created in my sin nature a desire to do it all the more. And that's how it works. It just, it creates this situation in us where we just are craving to everything that God said either to stay away from or to do. We want to disobey it because you know why? We like to see ourselves as sovereign. We do it on our own. No one is going to tell us how to live or what to do, especially not God and his word. And the law shows just how far we have fallen. And he said, the opportunity, uh, it's the opportunity through the commandment, it literally killed me. It just showed you that we're living in death. And he said that sin is dead. It's not that it's lifeless, it's not lifeless or non-existent, but rather it's dormant. And once God's law became known, sin just became like rampant in our life. And you see that. You ever seen like when, like a, like a bench or a door that's been painted and it says like wet paint, do not touch? What do people do, especially in public places? They all feel like, well, that doesn't apply to me. I'm going to walk over there and I'm going to touch it, see if it's dry now or something like that. Like, oh, I left my fingerprints. They see the sign and it incites in them, well, I got to touch that because I was told not to do it. Or if you tell children, hey, listen, great. We're glad to have you at the picnic here. Just stay away from the water. There's water? Where is it? And then, and then they just, they go to it. They weren't even thinking about the water, but because you told them to stay away from it, now they're thinking about the water and guess where they're going? If you want to find your kids, they're in the water because you told them not to be there. Isn't that wonder? It's parenting is a blessing. It's just awesome, right? That's how it works. And notice what he says, verse nine. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. People think that they're alive spiritually right? I mean, the Jewish people thought they were alive because they're following all these laws. Buddhists, for instance, they consider themselves alive spiritually because they are following an eightfold path to lead to the cessation of suffering and anxiety. Muslims have their five pillars, and they're looking to fulfill these in their life. They believe that this gives them life, and they are extremely zealous for it. But then there's also uh, Protestants, 
There are literally millions of people that think that they're alive spiritually because they are affiliated with a church or they go to church or they're just affiliated with Christianity in general because kind of the trend is developing like, well, I don't really be too committed to a church. I just kind of float. I'll associate with Christianity and I am a Christian, but I'm not a part of the local body or I'll just show up when I want. And they believe that they are alive or Catholics. And they're following rituals and sacraments and they believe that this gives them life with God. And Paul has some serious news for you. That those rituals that mindset, those sacraments, and your attendance, that doesn't lead to life. You need Christ. You can't trust in a church. You can't trust in some sort of path. You got to trust in Christ. You're not alive. You're dead. And he says, verse 10, and the commandment, which has result in life, proved a result in death for me. The commandment is like God pointing the finger and saying, this is the way to live. But we can't do it. So that same finger points and shows us that we are condemned. And then he says, For sin, verse 11, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. It's sin. Not the law, but sin. You see, the law is like a thermometer. It just tells you the temperature. The law is not like a thermostat. You know, like if you're like, man, it is hot, and you would go and adjust the thermostat, get things cooler, the law is powerless to change you. It just tells the temperature. It just shows you and tells you, you are so far from God. We uh, we were driving our trip to Colorado. Maybe you've had these experiences where you drive at night, you know, and you're in Texas, you're in far west Texas, not a lot of towns, but a lot of bugs, you know, and you're driving along and, and you just hear these things smashing against the windshield and stuff like that, right, you know, but you don't really see things, you're, you're driving, you're along fine, and you come into one of these small little Texas towns, and man, if it's got something going for it, it might even have a stoplight, you know, it's got a light, and you drive in and you stop, and you look at your windshield and you're like, whoa, it's a mess, you got splattered bugs everywhere, like, how in the world is I even seeing through that? But then you leave the little Texas town and you wave to the police officer who is right there at the edge of the town there and you keep going your way. Get back in the darkness, guess what? You don't see the bugs anymore, right? Well, that's how the law works. It's the light. And it shows us our sinfulness. And it points us to a savior. You need cleansing, you need help. And the law shows you that help is found in God's promised savior. And so he says in verse 13, Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me? Did the law cause my death? No, may it never be. Rather, it was sin. In order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. The law shows that I am a significant sinner. And it points me to Christ who is the only Savior. And when you are rightly related to Christ through faith, when you really believe in him, let me tell you something. You're released from the law. You are liberated from legalism. March 2011, uh, in the issue of New York Times, they had this article, a pretty fascinating article, about a 51-year-old ex-convict by the name of Robert Salzman. This guy, here's a picture of him. He had a horrific childhood. This guy has spent most of his life in prison. He is one bad dude. This is a picture of him at age 51. Six foot tall, could bench 400 pounds, okay? 
He was dangerous and a menace to society. But when he got released in 2001, he found it very difficult to live in, in the freedom of society, and he couldn't pay rent. He did stints at homeless shelters. But there was something that pretty fascinating that happened in this man's life. In June 2010, he had like a grace-like experience. There was a, there was a d- movie writer and director by the name of Rashad Ernesto Green, and he saw this guy on the street, and he in- invited him to actually kind of come and maybe potentially be involved in this movie he was making about a prison because he was looking for a hardened ex-convict, and lo and behold, he gave him the star and leading role. When Salzman was actually doing the recording, they did this shots in, in Long Island at a penitentiary there. There was one time where he was just exhausted from all the acting, and in between scenes, he, he just got in one of the cots in one of the cells, and he fell asleep. And when he woke up, he was completely confused, and he thought that he was back in the penitentiary again. And he actually started weeping until he realized that in actuality, he was a free man, that he could actually get out of the cot and he could walk out of that cell and he actually walk out of the prison because he was free. And friends, I'm here to tell you, it doesn't matter what happened in the past. You don't have to be paralyzed by your bad decisions. You are no longer the law. You are no longer under sin because you have been made free by Christ. And you, need not, you and I need to see ourselves as God sees us. You see, when we are compelled by love, we are no longer controlled by law. And so you need to see yourself for who you really are. You are dead to sin. You are released from the law. And you are alive and united with Christ. And when you come to spirituality, don't make it quantitative. Make it qualitative. Ask this question, are you growing to love, to trust, and to become more like Jesus? Because after all, that's what God intends. Because you and I, we've been liberated from legalism. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for an amazing passage of Scripture. You speak through your words so clearly, and our hearts and souls need it so badly. And so, Father, if there's anyone who has come today who's never trusted Jesus— would they right now that you've got their full attention, turn from their sin, trust in Christ as their Savior, and simply pray with me and say, God, I, I turn from self and sin and I put my faith in Jesus. Would you lead my life and fill my life? And Lord, for all of us, may we walk in the newness of life through the joy of the Spirit, realizing we've been liberated from legalism that we might experience the wonders and the joy of being united with Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.